0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
1: And I'm Joe McCormick, and today we're bringing you the introduction for an unexpected vault episode. This is something we are recording at some time in the generic past to maybe be used in the future whenever we need it. So we hope you enjoy this vault episode, whatever it is. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
0: hey welcome to stuff to blow your mind
1: my name is Robert lamb and I'm Joe McCormick and today we're gonna to be talking about a piece of legendary architecture this will be sort of in the tradition of our episodes on uh, oh we did one on the the, the great Buddha in Sichuan yes. right yeah yeah and, and like that episode
0: you know we're gonna we're gonna be focusing in on this particular um, work of architecture this 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 particular thing that people have made out of the earth. Uh, but in doing so, we're going to get a chance to discuss a little history, a little theology, and perhaps, uh, you know, overall introduce uh, many of our listeners to uh, maybe a part of the world you haven't heard about or a part of uh, uh, of uh, our shared history that you may not be that familiar with. Uh, because when you think of great constructions, you know, what, what comes to mind? You think of the great pyramids, the great wall of China. Perhaps you think of Stonehenge or the ziggurats of Mesopotamia, uh, the Mesoamerican pyramids, perhaps. And, and these are all uh, fabulous. And these are just a few examples that we can turn to for amazing marvels of stonework, architecture, and construction throughout humanity's history. And with all of them, we we revel in the study of their construction, right? How did, in many cases, ancient people refine the raw earth itself into the necessary building blocks? How did they transport all this stuff then to the building sites? And then how did they assemble these structures? that end up standing you know the test of millennia while the empires
1: around them rise and fall and yet the these structures remain you know something we've discussed a number of times is the way these ancient structures uh they demonstrate mysteries about, uh, about past engineering techniques that very often tend to cause people uh, to want to go to, to outlandish alternate hypotheses. You know, all yes. the ideas about how the pyramids were, were built, you always get the aliens hypothesis and like, you know, why is it that people want to go there with that kind of thing rather than just thinking, wow, ancient people must have been so clever to come up with, with uh, ways of making such amazing structures with the limited tools they had right yes like the the idea that ancient Egyptian
0: humans built the pyramids is, uh, to my mind, uh, the, the plenty amazing. You don't have to go to the even more amazing and outlandish uh, idea that aliens came from another world and showed them how to do it. I mean, really, the, the, it, it's far more interesting to to examine uh, the truth and seek see the truth of the situation. Like, how did actual humans carry this out? How did they, uh, even with their, you know, their limited technologies, figure out how to achieve
1: these marvels? But it's not just the pyramids. I mean, I think it's fascinating. Being that sooner or later, an aliens hypothesis shows up for all of these, you know, for Stonehenge, for mm-hmm. the Mesoamerican pyramids, for basically anything built in a pre-modern period that still looks amazing today. Right. And, I mean, really, if you if you wonder about anything that you
0: maybe don't have a full grasp on how uh, the pieces came together, like, say, bread, it's easy to think, oh, bread just does not seem to make sense. It must have been the gift of an alien culture. Uh, but we, we talked about this before. We did a whole um, uh, pair of episodes on ancient aliens alien hypothesis, and and uh, what Carl Sagan had to say about it, and other critics have had to say about it. Uh, and, but indeed, uh, all of these uh, uh, these locations that I've mentioned already, you can find certainly find some ancient aliens folks out there that are uh, chiming in on it. And uh, I also ran across uh, some related to today's episode. Oh, no. Because uh, to, to, but, but we're not going to really get into that, because the real story is the amazing part. We're going to be discussing uh, a particular example of construction that... That is really just as amazing as you know making all these giant blocks, bring them together, and building the pyramid. But uh, this particular example is also going to buck the traditional steps that we've discussed here, and we're going to be looking at the centuries-old Christian temples in Ethiopia that were not built from blocks of stone that were you know quarried over here and then brought together and then assembled into a building. No, these are free-standing monolithic churches that are uh, each hewn from the solid red volcanic scoria underlaid by dark gray basalt standing tall in the quarries from which they were sculpted. So basically, these were hewn out of solid
1: stone. The quarry becomes the courtyard. Yeah. It's a building that is not built but released from the earth. Yeah. Uh, Subtractive manufacturing of marvels. It It is amazing. I was not not familiar with these
0: until just last week when I was looking around for an episode uh, for us to do, and I was initially thought, "Oh, why don't we do Petra, uh, the 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 ruins in uh, in Jordan, you mm-hmm. know, with the, the uh, where the architecture is built into the side of this um, uh,
1: this kind of like ravine uh, situation, right? If you think you've never seen these uh, th- these rock hewn uh, buildings, you probably have." They are featured, for example, in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. They show up in several movies. Uh, Petra, specifically, uh,
0: in this case. You're right. So so I was thinking, oh, Petra would be a good uh, episode. And I started looking around about it. Indeed, Petra is fascinating. Perhaps we'll come back to it. But then I I was just looking around at other examples of of, buildings that had been hewn from stone. And then these just really stood out as just the the prime example, like the most uh, extreme example of what you could do with subtractive manufacturing of an entire building, to build, to construct a building by not even constructing it, by just carving away at solid stone until it is there with no need for bricks or mortar or wood or nails or any of this. Architecture as sculpture. Yeah. So where will you find these? Well, you will find them in Lalibela, Ethiopia. Uh, Ethiopia is, of course, a nation in Eastern Africa, and they stood there uh, at least since the late 12th century CE, though, uh, you know, we'll probably get into some of the dating uh, in greater detail later. But first, just a few notes about Ethiopia in general. Uh, modern Ethiopia is the most populous landlocked country in the world and the second most populous African nation. After Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ethiopia is also considered one of only two African nations never to be subjected to to um, long-term European colonization, the other being Liberia. And uh, to be more specific, it was, it, was never, it was never colonized during that 19th century period where so much of Africa um, was, mm-hmm. uh, though it was occupied by Italy uh, during the Second World War, but not, an, not long enough for there to be like true lasting cultural change mm-hmm. because of it. Still, throughout its history, it certainly came into contact with foreign ideas and influences, and we'll be discussing a major one here today. Because one of the other things you'll notice about uh, Ethiopia is that its majority religion is the Ethiopian Orthodox Tewahedo Church, uh, what's known as an Oriental Orthodox Christian Church, and it dates back many centuries. Uh, There's also a sizable Islamic population in Ethiopia, followed in popularity by uh, Protestants, traditional faiths, Catholicism, and Judaism. Now, of course, there are other fascinating things about Ethiopia as well. Uh, for instance, Ethiopian cuisine uh, mm-hmm. has certainly uh, traveled well uh, around the world. I think it's widely believed to be the origin place of coffee,
1: isn't yes, it? Yes,
0: coffee yeah. and, uh, and okra as well. I was uh, I chatted with Annie of uh, our fellow podcast here in the Atlanta office's uh, Saver, and I said, hey, have you guys done anything on Ethiopian cuisine? Because we can mention it on the podcast. And uh, they said that they had not yet, though they, they both love Ethiopian food, but they have done an episode. So an Okra and they've done an episode on coffee that get into those origins.
1: I'd say those are two of my favorite plant-based foods. <laughs> are you an okra fan or are you, you you one of those people who thinks it's slimy?
0: Oh, I, I love okra
1: and oh, okay, I love cool. it
0: because it is slimy especially
1: in gumbo. Oh, yeah. Because it
0: acts as a thickening agent. So, I I, I want there to be okra present in, uh, in many a dish. Plus, it's great It's great fried. It's great um, It's great pickled. Uh, yeah, I'm an okra fan for
1: sure. Okay, we're on the same page. I like it all those ways, too. I also really like okra in Indian food. Hmm, I yeah. feel like, yeah, it goes really good with Indian's Spices. Ooh, I I feel like I've had it
0: in Indian food before but maybe not recently enough uh, for it to really strike a chord. I'll have to seek it out.
1: There was a restaurant here in town that made a really amazing curry dokra and then and then they went out of business. Uh, All right, well, let's talk in greater detail about Ethiopian Christianity then, because
0: uh, since we're focusing in on uh, old Christian temples that were carved out of the ground in Ethiopia, we should describe how Christianity came to East
1: Africa. Sure, Uh, so I was looking at a scientific paper that we'll make a brief reference to later in the episode, uh, and the authors of this paper, uh, Ethiopian scientists Asfawosun Asrat and Yodit Ayalu, they point out in the background section of their paper that the the broader tradition of rock hewn churches in Ethiopia is historically associated with the coming of a group of figures known as the Nine Saints, who were alleged to have journeyed from Egypt and Syria during the late 5th and early 6th centuries to preach the gospel of Christianity in Ethiopia, and more specifically, to spread and promote the monastic lifestyle. So I I was digging into this claim. I wanted to learn more about the Nine Saints, and this eventually led me down a path where I found a really awesome entry about uh, Ethiopian Christianity and the Ethiopian monastic tradition in a book called The Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia of Monasticism, edited by the historian Will Johnston, with this specific entry on Ethiopian monastic Christianity, written by the Ethiopian American philologist Getachew Hiley. Uh,
0: I was reading this as well, and it uh, is is quite uh, quite a fascinating entry. I just had no idea just how uh, important the monastic tradition was for just Ethiopian uh, culture in general.
1: Yeah, yeah. So Hiley writes that uh, due to the proximity of Ethiopia to the Middle East, some Christianity probably began to spread there organically as soon as the religion was founded. But Haile also claims that Ethiopian Christianity is a form of the religion that's kind of uniquely shaped by monks and monastic influences. So w- what exactly would that mean? Well, monasticism is the tradition we associate with monks and nuns. It's the strain of a faith that calls for a radical lifestyle of religious devotion, often including things like vows of poverty. Poverty, or vows of chastity or vows of silence or fasting, a general seclusion from secular life. So, you know, the priest or preacher within a religion might usually live among the society, preaching the faith. Meanwhile, the monk undertakes in some way to live outside the society, rejecting many of the comforts and pleasures of normal life, making their day-to-day habits and living conditions themselves kind of a radical demonstration of faith.
0: Uh, An interesting fact uh, that the author points out uh, is that it's currently – really unknown how many monasteries are in Ethiopia mm-hmm. because the government keeps track of churches, but not every monastery has a church and not every mountain or wilderness center that is, uh, that it, you know, is historically a monastery is going to be active today. Uh, but he lists quite a number of them. And he also mentions Ethiopian monasteries outside of the country, such as in Egypt where they, uh, they it looks like they now live uh, alongside Coptic uh, Christian monks there, but then also in Jerusalem as well.
1: Yeah, and we can come back to later on how these monasteries appear to play a very important role in Ethiopian religious life. Uh, so there's a legend about the founding of the Ethiopian Christian Church recorded by the fourth century Christian historian and scholar Tyrannius Rufinus, who lived in what is now northern Italy. And the tale told by Rufinus goes something like this. So in the city of Tyr, which is in modern day Lebanon, you know, it's like Tyr and Sidon, uh, there was once this philosopher named Meropius. And Meropius had two young students named Frumentius and Adesius. Now, one day, Meropius decides he's going to set out on a sea voyage and travel to India, and he's going to bring his two students with him. But then tragedy strikes, and their ship sinks outside of a port that Rufinus writes is in India, but it's apparently widely interpreted to be a confused attempt to reference Ethiopia. Uh, So this is believed often to be Ethiopia that he's talking about. Mm -hmm. And the two boys are rescued and taken to the royal court of the capital city of Axum. This would have been the capital of what's known as the Axum dynasty or the, or the kingdom of Axum uh, where they were given employment by the king and Fermentius became the king's secretary while Adesius became the king's butler. And through his position as secretary and his subsequent role instructing the young princes at the palace, Fermentius was allegedly able to eventually convert the entire royal court to Christianity. And from here, it's written that Fermentius encouraged the scattered Christians among the people of Axum to organize into a church and to a school for the Christian upbringing of children. And then when Fermentius and Adesius were released from their positions in the court at Axum, Fermentius allegedly went to Alexandria to convince the current archbishop there, Athanasius, to recognize the church in Ethiopia and look after its well-being. And in turn, Athanasius said, well, you, you'd be a good leader of that church. And so Athanasius and the other bishops decided to name Fermentius Bishop of Axum. So tradition says that in this way, Fermentius became the first bishop and the first apostle of Ethiopia. And he went throughout the kingdom preaching the peace of Christ, which is how he became 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 known in the Ethiopian Christian tradition as Abba Salama, which means Father Peace. Now, Hiley, however, uh, casts doubt on the historical validity of this, this foundational narrative, noting that local sources don't really mention anything significant about Fermentius in this period, and that the historical evidence indicates the story was probably later introduced to Ethiopia after first being written by other authors in Greek. Hiley uh, writes, quote, Undoubtedly, Fermentius was a bishop consecrated for Ethiopia by St. Athanasius, but the local tradition has no memory of him and his efforts to christianize ethiopia doesn't history often work that way you got a good founding story but then like the locals didn't record anything about (laughs) it so it seems like it probably didn't quite happen that way yeah or yeah just in general this um this sort of
0: push and pull between reality and myth and uh, that area in between where you're not
1: sure where the history ends and the myth begins Yeah, it's always the way. Uh, Anyway, however, Haile writes that uh, much of the Christianizing influence on Ethiopia in the following centuries did come from missionaries, primarily monks from the Byzantine Christian world. And of course, you know, the Byzantine Empire at the time would have spanned much of the Mediterranean. So Mm -hmm. people of Byzantine influences uh, could be coming from like Egypt or wherever. Right. And uh, by the way, if you want a, a deeper dive
0: into Byzantine culture and Byzantine history, we did an episode on Greek fire uh, years back uh, that we recommend.
1: Yes. Uh, so the, these these monks of the Byzantine Christian influence would be arriving individually and in groups roughly between the 5th and the 7th centuries. And the most famous of these Byzantine missionary monks are known locally in Ethiopian tradition as the Nine Saints. Now, th- there's an interesting historical recontextualization that Haile gives here. He says that church historians generally believed that this group of missionaries was actually on a kind of factional theological mission. Hmm. They were trying to get Ethiopia to take sides in a theological dispute that was going on in the church or to stay on their side. Uh, So at the time, one of the major theological disputes rocking the Christian church was about the essential nature of Christ. And the question is this. Did Jesus Christ have just one nature where he was entirely divine or entirely human? Or did Christ have two separate natures, one of them earthly and one of them divine? Now, I know with that kind of argument, I'm sure some people are kind of rolling your eyes like that doesn't sound like a super meaningful distinction, but disputes like this were rampant in the early church and they led to bitter, agonizing power struggles and sometimes excommunication, accusations of heresy and all the concomitant punishments and, you know, et cetera. So these fights about the nature of Christ are known as Christological disputes and they th- these disputes are the origin of a lot of the dogmas that would later become you know widespread in 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 the catholic church yeah i mean because you, when you start asking the question uh, you know is
0: is was christ human or divine if you then say oh well there is he was human or he had a human element then you might say well how human was he human like like you are the rich clergy
1: or is he human like like we are the peasants mm-hmm. uh, th- that's a really great point especially because while some of these things, these distinctions, might not sound super meaningful to us, they had implications, mm-hmm. often like material, political implications that aren't obvious if you just read about the pure theological dispute. Right. That's one thing I love about the uh, the Umberto Eco novel and the name of the rose, which uh, we, we've talked about on the show before. Is it it uh, deals with a lot of these angels dancing on the head of a pin kind of theological disputes, but also gives some shading about what their real world political and economic implications
0: were. Right, and how it ends up breaking down uh, to the suffering of at least the common man anyway.
1: So anyway, the view that Christ had two separate natures, both divine and human, came to be known as uh, Chalcedonianism after the Council of Chalcedon in 451, which uh, ended with, the, with a sort of uneasy consensus upon the two nature thing. And the view that Christ had only one nature came to be known as monophysitism. Uh, And this view, the one nature view of monophysitism was probably, uh, at least according to this church historian interpretation, was probably represented by these figures known as the nine saints. They, you know, if this view is correct, they came to Ethiopia to make sure that the Ethiopian church continued to preach one nature in Christ and resist the two nature view. And you can also see how they
0: would be they would sort of be seeking to to, to get ahead uh, to this far flung uh, uh, region of Christians and just ensure that they had. The right version of the
1: of the story, right yes, yes, uh, though Hailey says while this is the the thing that's generally suspected by church historians, nothing is certain we, we don 't know for sure about all the motivations of these nine saints. Locally in Ethiopia, the Nine Saints are, are not remembered for arguing any particular side of a Christological smackdown. They're, they're mainly remembered for strengthening the faith of the Ethiopian church and for, again, emphasizing monasticism, the, the monk lifestyle. Uh, So these nine saints are said to have brought with them a number of important books, and these are widely believed to to have included the books of the New Testament, but also books of Christian doctrine and education. So in in, uh, evidence of the strong influence of monasticism in Ethiopia, Haile mentions that one of the first books translated into the Ethiopian language at the time uh, known as Gez was a work known as the monastic rule of Pacomius who was the founder of the cenobitic monasticism tradition. Now, uh, this is a type of monasticism that encouraged monks to live together in communities with other monks, like the abbeys we would traditionally think of, rather than simply living individually as isolated hermits, which I think is the older view of the monk lifestyle.
0: And of course, you still saw examples
1: of that in Ethiopia as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You see both. Uh, So maybe we should take a break and then when we come back, we can talk about the Nine Saints. All right, we're back.
0: So let's let's get uh, get to these nine saints. Uh, who uh, who were they, and what
1: were they? Uh, what what did they allegedly bring to Ethiopia? Okay, well, Haile mentions actually ten well remembered Byzantine monks who each founded a monastery in Ethiopia. Uh, the the first one is not traditionally thought of as one of the nine saints, but he's historically very important, and so he bears mentioning. This is Libano Sormata, and uh, legend has it that he heard the call to a monastic life on his wedding night. That is is bad timing, dude. Or perfect timing, I guess, you know? I guess so. Uh, So on his wedding night, he's like, oh, oh, no, wait, I've got to take a vow of celibacy. I got to go be a monk. So he runs off to do that. Uh, And uh, he apparently went to Ethiopia where he founded a monastery and helped an Ethiopian monk translate one of the gospels into Gez. Uh, And then the next are who are traditionally thought of as the nine saints. Uh, I'm not going to mention biographical details or legends about all of them, just a couple of them. So the first one is named Aragawi or Zemikael, and he is known as the leader of the nine saints or the elder. Uh, Zemikael is also an appellation that means like devoted to Michael. Uh, And on on, so the the nine saints supposedly traveled from Egypt to Ethiopia with uh, Zemichael as their leader. And legend says that quote the saint used a long serpent as a rope to ascend the impregnable summit of Mount Damo, where he built his monastery. All right, so they all build a monastery. This guy uses a a snake to climb a mountain, and he builds a monastery on top of the mountain. Uh, And this is a mountaintop monastery that still exists today. Obviously, historians do not think he actually used a snake to climb the mountain. But uh, there is really a monastery there. It is attributed to him. It's in the region of Tigray, and it's famous for being only accessible by a rope-assisted ascent up a steep cliffside. So you really do have to climb a rope up a cliff to get to this monastery. That that sounds terrifying.
0: And, and I also think that that might be the point. Uh, of it because there was a, there was another cliffside or um, a mountaintop uh, sanctuary that we uh, that we ran across. I was looking at a, a video from Great Big Story about this, and I think there's also,
1: uh, uh, there is also there have been a BBC videos about it as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- this is this other one is known as Abuna Yamata Ga or the Church of Saint Abuna Yamata. Yeah,
0: and the, the video I watched showed how to to climb it. First of all, you have to climb it barefoot, mm-hmm. um, and then the final stretch is this is after you've actually ascended to to a height on level with this small little monastery that's built into the the cliff, you have to walk along this uh, cliffside trail to the entrance, and it's just a sheer drop to your left. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the narrator was talking about just how it's it's terrifying. And then you're inside the sanctuary, and I, I can't help. I mean, part of that, of course, is just nature of the location, mm-hmm. but the other part is, I can imagine that you're you're walking along this ledge, and it is this terrifying. Uh, Um, Ordeal, you know, you're imagining yourself plummeting and falling and dying. And then you emerge into this, this decorated cavern with these uh, images painted on the walls, and you're in this holy sanctuary, uh, just, you know, secluded uh, from everything else.
1: Yeah, I think what you're emphasizing there is that the the seclusion, the isolation, the inaccessibility, and the danger are not bugs but features. Mm-hmm. They're part of the religious experience generated in getting to this this place believed to be holy.
0: Right. So I can see the same situation being in place if you were having to climb this this rope uh, to finally emerge into a, a sanctuary.
1: Yeah. Uh, an interesting note on the same subject, but uh, this is from a different part of uh, Gattacho Haile's history. Uh, Haile also writes it's right, so that the, there are two words meaning monastery uh he doesn't say the language specifically but i'm pretty sure he's talking about Amharic, the uh the ethiopian language of today but he says these two words today meaning monastery the first word is Daber, which literally comes from the word meaning mountain as in mount sinai and then the other word is gadam which uh, which comes from a word meaning wilderness as in john the baptist referring to himself as a voice crying out in the wilderness uh and I love that. That's so interesting. So you got these two words, both mean monastery. One means mountain and one means wilderness.
0: Yeah, that's great. I mean, that, that ties in nicely with topics we've discussed in the show before. Uh, how high elevation can, uh, can impact the mind mm-hmm. and then also the, 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 the recharging effects of, of being in a natural environment.
1: Yeah, and uh, I, I think you read this uh, part also where he talks about th- they do sometimes refer to different types of monasteries. Right. So like the Dabur Monastery would be a monastery that is on top of a mountain or is a certain type of like uh, major officially recognized monastery. Meanwhile, uh, a, a Gadam Monastery, I think, can be more like uh, – is uh, can be more unofficially recognized or can be anywhere. Right, yeah. And so th-
0: thus it becomes very difficult to actually have a good count on how many Ethiopian
1: Monasteries exist. Yeah, uh, so, so that was, anyway, the, the legacy of the first uh, of the nine saints. The second one is known as uh, Pentaleon or Pentaleon, uh, called Pentaleon of the Cell, because he allegedly never once left his tiny cell after he entered it. So this guy, one of the vows he takes is a vow to be sealed in this room. He keeps his vow to remain inside for 45 years until his death. Wow. Uh, the next one is uh, Yeshak or Isaac or uh, Garima. So many of them have multiple names they're known by. This one is believed to have been born a prince but then became a monk. Uh, there's Afsi, his, uh, hagiographer writes that he never died, but instead ascended directly into heaven like Elijah or like Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so far, each of these are kind of hitting on,
0: uh, like sort of traditional tropes of the, the holy man or the hermit, or, uh, certainly the, the prince that
1: becomes a holy man is very much in keeping with uh, the Buddha. Yes. Yes. Uh, and then you got the next five, no bio details on these highly didn't have much about them except like when their feast days are celebrated, but you've got, uh, Gubba, Aleph Yamata Likanos and Sema and Haile writes that uh, the monks you would meet in Ethiopia today often like to trace their lineage to one of the nine saints. So they can say, oh, I'm of the tradition of, uh, of Yamada or I'm of the tradition of Pantaleon." But anyway, uh, this period, the nine saints period would be the fifth uh, to sixth century. And this appeared to be a boom time for Christianity and monks in Ethiopia. Haile mentions that uh, an Egyptian monk named uh, Cosmos Indicopliustes uh wrote of visiting the coastal regions of Ethiopia along the Red Sea in the year 525 and that uh Indicopleustes wrote at the at the time that the churches and the monasteries in Ethiopia were thriving However, sometime in the next few hundred years, definitely by the 10th century, the political and religious power center of uh, the city of Axum and, and the Axum Empire was reduced to ruins. And the cause of this is not known for sure, though there are some unsubstantiated legends about an uprising against the church by non-Christians. But uh, we don't know exactly what happened there. But eventually, highly writes that uh, the power vacuum was filled by a new ruling dynasty dynasty the Zagwe which lasted until around 1270
0: yeah i was i was reading about this this uprising in uh, the history of Ethiopia by Sahid A Adejumobi uh, the, uh, and basically the, the chief antagonist that is attributed uh, to what is sometimes called the Ethiopian dark age was the non-christian queen uh, Gudit uh, she uh, according to these uh, these stories uh, usurped the throne by force and reigned for 40 years and then Passed the crown on to her descendants, who were then eventually overthrown by Mara Takla Haymanot, uh, an Aga overlord. And then um, uh, this uh, overlord married a female descendant of the Aksumite monarchs of old and started the Zagwe dynasty uh, that you mentioned already. Uh, but there are apparently a lot of inconsistencies about Gudit, about you know who she was, where she came from, what exactly she did aside from decimating um, uh, the, the capital. And, and overturning the, pr- the prior uh, rule. Mm. Um, so it, it seems rather difficult to separate the history and the mythology. Uh, there's you know, often the, the, the details of one story conflict with those of another. Uh, for instance, in one telling, at least, she is described as being of Jewish origin, uh, thus g- Gudit Judith, there being mm. potentially some connection there.
1: Yeah, Haile doesn't s- seem to credit the story from what I can tell. Uh, he, he mentions that the names applied to this woman, for example, like uh, like Gudit or Isato, if she existed, are probably not even her real names, mm-hmm. but they're derogatory terms applied to her by people who saw her as a villain. If she was in fact a real figure, so this period seems murky. Right. But whatever led from the collapse of the Aksum kingdom to the foundation of the Zagwe dynasty, it's under the Zagwe kingdom that the rock-hewn churches of Lalibela are traditionally said to have been designed and constructed. So, let's turn to the king, Lalibela. Yes,
0: Lalibela, uh, the, the namesake of, uh, of, of the city of Lalibela, mm-hmm. Emperor Gebre Meskel Lalibela who lived 1181 through 1221 and who again was part of the Zagwe dynasty. That dynasty
1: lasted from the year 900 to the year 1270. I think that's got to be a rough estimate on the beginning of it, right? Right, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I've seen it alleged in several sources that the name of this king, uh, that Lalibela means something about bees, like, quote, his sovereignty is recognized by bees, or that it just means surrounded by bees. Uh, I have not found that claim source to its origin or explained anywhere that looked too solid to me. So a question mark on that one, but I hope it's true because I like it. It's, a, it's an absolutely wonderful, magical
0: gimmick for a monarch. Yeah. They're surrounded by bees. And, uh-huh. Yeah. And really, this whole dynastic <laughs> um, uh, struggle that we're uh, describing here, it just, I mean, Ethiopian history is amazing. And I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I'm, I'm finally digging into it. Some. So uh, the, the Zagwe dynasty uh, had to, they had to make their capital in a new location, the previous one had been decimated by mm-hmm. the prior rule. So they made their capital in Roa, uh, which later took the name of the monarch uh, that we're talking about, Lalibela. Mm-hmm. So Lalibela is best remembered today for those these monoliths that he builds, or has built, or completes the build, building of. You mean
1: the rock hewn churches? Yes, the yes. rock
0: churches. Yeah, either he, uh, this, the tales are, you know differ, but either he commanded their construction or he oversaw their
1: completion. Mm-hmm. At any rate, his name is kind of like stamped on them historically. I think there's one other version in which his widow had at least one of the churches built in her husband's memory. Ah, okay. Now, that's the traditional telling. I was reading a short essay about the churches by a scholar of African arts named Kristen Windmiller Luna, and she points out that archaeologists have not actually established precise dates for the construction of the different parts of the Lalibela complex, but that the most common view among scholars is that these churches were probably actually constructed in stages over a longer period of time, maybe in like four or five different phases between the 7th and the 13th centuries. But again, we don't really know for sure. And in addition to the traditional ascription to Lalibela, the king's reign would fall right toward the end of this hypothetical multi-phase construction period. Yeah, so at any rate, his name is highly Highly associated with them. And of course, the town bears
0: his name. Um, and now th- there are some other stories you'll encounter out there about uh, that have alternate hypotheses for their creation. Uh, there was one I saw mentioned in a BBC article even stating that the Knights Templars may have created them. But <laughs> I don't think anybody really gives those stories a lot of, um, uh, you know, they don't give them a lot of attention. I think this is the primary hypothesis uh, that everyone uh, uh, agrees with. Wait,
1: by history channel logic is or the Knights Templars also – is that the same as the aliens him- hypothesis because the Knights Templars were aliens? <laughs>
0: Knights Templar extremism is like a gateway to ancient aliens. Okay. You know, if, you, if you just keep following and you keep just really you – know, if you really want everything to be the Knights Templars, at the end of it, you're just going to wind up in ancient aliens territory. Yeah. That's my take on it. Not that the Templars are not in and of themselves fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd actually love to come back to them on invention. I think they uh, arguably factor into um, some, um, uh, certainly some economic inventions of, over time.
1: Okay. But uh but anyway that's for another that's for another day. But let's explore that traditional story attributing the rock-hewn churches directly to Lalibela. Now uh, of this though there are two
0: different versions at least uh, that I came across. One is that uh Lalibela had himself visited Jerusalem sometime around, say, 1187, uh, just
1: before the crusader-held city fell back into the hands of Islamic forces. So, like many Christians at the time, uh, many Christians of means would have wanted to make a pilgrimage to what they believed was the birthplace of Christ right. uh, for like religious devotion. Yeah, and but so it, he would have made this pilgrimage, potentially.
0: Yes. Now, another version is that he didn't actually travel there, but he saw Jerusalem in a dream, uh, and, and particularly probably in a dream after its fall back into Islamic hands. Wait a minute. I just made a big
1: mistake. I said birthplace of Christ. Jerusalem is not the birthplace of Christ, but it is very important in in Christian uh, tradition. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. He came into Jerusalem on a donkey, but uh, in none of the gospels does it say he was born in Jerusalem? Sorry. Just had to clean that up.
0: Oh yeah. No worries. Well, in either case, either he visited Jerusalem and then it fell or Jerusalem fell and then he saw a vision of it in his dreams, Mm -hmm. but then it becomes clear to him. I need to create a new Jerusalem right here in Christian Ethiopia. And then, uh, since no one can travel to Jerusalem now among the Christians, Mm -hmm. uh, then all the Ethiopian Christians can simply travel here and, and have a religious experience here in this city. And so, thus the creation of these 11 monolithic churches, each plunging up to 50 meters in the earth or roughly 164 feet. And of course, the idea, again, would be that since Christian pilgrims could no longer trek to Jerusalem. This would serve as a new center of pilgrimage. And indeed, it does remain an important pilgrimage destination for Ethiopian Christians. Uh, Christmas Eve, uh, which is uh, known as Genna in, um, in uh, Ethiopian traditions, is a, favorite, uh, is a favorite time to visit with people walking hundreds of miles or more to visit the churches and engage in rites of fasting, prayer, and celebration.
1: Yeah, and that's one thing that makes these churches special today. I was reading again in that piece by uh, Kristen Windmiller Luna that some of the earliest of these structures may have originally served civic functions, like as palaces or fortresses. But at some point, they became these churches as destinations for pilgrimage. And their location makes them different from some of the you know you would think of the big, grand Catholic cathedrals that you might find in the middle of a huge city. Today, these churches are somewhat remote; they're not in the center of the Ethiopian capital. Addis Ababa. The, and so it makes sense uh, to think of them as a site of pilgrimage. They're a place you would have to go to in a journey to show your devotion.
0: Yeah. And, and we were talking about visiting these sites on mountaintops and how there's like the physical ordeal of climbing up to reach them. Mm-hmm. And with these uh, temples that are essentially, you know, just dug out of, out of these quarries in the earth, you have to climb down to visit them like they're accessible via like steep winding stairs and tunnels and, uh, you know, uh, tunnel complexes. Uh, so you have, uh, you have a very similar situation except instead of an ascent, it is a descent. So uh, let's look at these 11 churches. All right. So um, they're arranged into three groups, and each one differs in exact size, rock color, architectural style. And um, according to uh, UNESCO, uh, because they are UNESCO World Heritage Sites, their translated names are as follows. There's the House of the Savior of the World, and this is thought to be the largest of these monolithic churches. There's the House of Mary. There's the House of the Cross. There's the House of Virgins, there's the house of Golgotha Michiel, which um, uh, contains life-size depictions of the 12 apostles carved into the walls. And uh, apparently only four are visible to the public and the others are kept uh, uh, hidden behind uh, like drapes and curtains. Mm-hmm. There's the house of Emmanuel. There's the house of Saint uh, Mercurios. Uh, And this was possibly a former residence. There's the house of uh, Abbot Libanos. There's house of Gabriel Raphael. This was also possibly a former residence. There's the House of Holy Bread, and then finally there is the House of St. George. This is the one, if you if you see like a, an Instagram post for this uh, podcast episode, this is the image you're seeing uh, because it has this kind of cruciform plan to it, uh, shaped like a cross, specifically a Greek cross, and if you view it from above, uh, it's – It's it's really – when I first saw an image of it from above, I wasn't
1: even sure what I was looking at. Yeah. There's a quality to it. I think you were actually talking about this before we started recording how it's the kind of architectural marvel that is difficult to appreciate from a single photograph Mm -hmm. because in only seeing it from one perspective, you don't really understand what's so marvelous about it. You have to see like – you have to see it from multiple different photos from different angles to start to appreciate it.
0: Yes, absolutely, because photographs taken from uh, from down inside the, uh, the, the the quarry, the pit, whatever courtyard you want, pit, the, pit, the yeah. courtyard pit, whatever you want to call it, like yeah, those are impressive because you see this image of this building uh, uh, here just rising up and. And if you don't know, you might just assume that it was built, uh, that it was constructed out of yeah,
1: bricks. Maybe surrounded by walls. Yeah.
0: Uh, but then when you see it from above, it's like, what is this strange cross surrounded by, uh, you know, uh, by, by the, you know, pit on all sides? that's just sort of emerging from the wilderness uh, landscape all around it.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, again, this is the Church of St. George we're talking about. I, I guess let's take a closer look at. This one to see what's so architecturally special about it. Uh, You you mentioned the idea of it plunging into the earth. I think that's the perfect way to describe the Church of St. George. It doesn't rise up from the earth like a regular church or a regular building. It rises from the bottom of a pit. And the pit is a pit carved into natural rock. Mm -hmm. So as you approach the church, you're walking along a natural rock surface, not a paved area, but just exposed rock from planet Earth. And as you keep going, you realize you are approaching a deep rectangular hole in the ground with edges dropping straight off. And uh, from the from the top, you know, the lip of the pit down to the bottom, I think it's roughly twelve meters or forty feet, roughly. Uh, the pit being maybe twenty-five meters or about eighty feet wide square. And then in the middle of this rectangular pit, there's this huge building in the shape of a Greek cross, as you mentioned, which looks kind of like a plus sign, uh, approximately as tall as the ground you're standing on, though the edges of the pit are not exactly all at the same height. So it depends on where you're standing. Uh, It might be taller than where you are. It might be a little below you. But this cross-shaped building in the center of the pit is the church. And as the name suggests, again, it's not built but carved directly out of the existing Basaltic rock. It is one unbroken hunk of natural stone released from the earth by hammer and chisel.
0: Yeah, it's just a, it's amazing to to even think about. And, and we've never been. I, obviously, I look forward to hearing from anyone out there who has visited this site and can uh, describe uh, you know, what it was like to uh, to see this in person. But it's just it's such a drastically different model of making a building compared to
1: everything else that is has, has been the norm. You know, it's not just the case for this church. I mean, this is true of many types of of sacred destinations and and holy buildings, but its weirdness makes it holy. Like the weirdness of the architectural construction here contributes to the alienated uh, feeling you get that, that I think, you know, it's the same reason that. You're far less likely to have a religious experience in a, in a very normal building, in an office building full of cubicles and hallways with, you know, carpeted floors and stuff. When you go into a cathedral, this is not like the other buildings you go into. It's very weird and the weirdness itself puts you in an, a, in a kind of like disoriented, alienated state of mind that makes you prone to having feelings of connection with higher beings and stuff like that. And I I think the architectural weirdness here probably does a similar thing. Yeah, I mean, and and it's probably the reason why some of the tales uh, say that,
0: oh, the angels helped them construct it, you know? Yes. Um, Which, again, is not to inspire anybody to go nuts with ancient aliens uh, stuff here. (laughs) But just like the idea that this is such a drastically different building from anything we're used to, like the divine imprint
1: is here. Yeah. Uh, So another thing that's really cool about it is, I mentioned you can walk up to the edge of this pit. There's the building rising up from the bottom of the pit. The edges of the pit are a straight drop off around all the sides. So how do you get into the church? Well, apparently the bottom of the pit is accessed via a narrow descending canyon and then which turns into a tunnel that is carved into the rock formation nearby. So again, this is something where somebody had to carve an access ramp down through the existing native living rock there in this narrow tunnel and then you come out in the courtyard below
0: yeah, and I, I can only uh, assume that you know this. This is again the monastic tradition, the idea of the importance of pilgrimage coming into play here. Like mm-hmm. it, it is not a thing that should be easy to access. Uh, it is supposed to be um,
1: a journey to the bottom. Uh, now, apparently, there are other o- openings in the walls of the this courtyard pit, which give access to chambers that can be used for different things, like uh, sometimes housing, I think, or storage, or as crypts. Yeah, uh, UNESCO
0: describes there being all these of these sites being connected via, quote, drainage ditches, trenches, and ceremonial passages, some of which opening to hermit caves and catacombs.
1: Now, I mentioned there was a uh, there was a scientific paper we were going to reference. Maybe we should take a break and then come back to, to to look at that real quick. All right, we're back. All right. So earlier we mentioned uh, a, a scientific paper that would be examining some of the geological properties of these rock hewn churches, and so this paper was published in the Journal of African Earth Sciences, called uh, "Geological and Geotechnical Properties of the Medieval Rock Hewn Churches of Lalibela, Northern Ethiopia," by Asfawosan Asrat and uh, Yudit Ayalu. And the authors here use a metric called the rock mass rating to characterize the constituents and the condition of the rocks that make up the churches of Lalibela. And they found that these churches are mostly carved from, quote, medium strength to strong, intact, scoriaceous basalt rocks. Now, what does scoriaceous basalt rocks mean? Uh, scoriaceous rocks, uh, basalt rocks would be dark colored volcanic rocks with a porous or a uh, vesicular texture. Uh, so pores or vesicles. What does that mean in rock terms? Well, these are little Holes, basically little bubbles that are created when magma with dissolved gas content erupts and then is exposed to the surface. And then some of that dissolved gas volatilizes and forms bubbles, which can become hardened into the rock as the lava cools. Uh, So a very extreme form of this you might have encountered was probably something like pumice, you know, that has huge holes in it. Mm -hmm. Uh, This, I think, is not quite that porous, but still it's porous. It's got like holes and little tunnels and bubbles in it. It
0: makes me think of cooking pancakes, this description, Uh where you get the little bubbles on top. It's pretty much exactly
1: like that, Uh, So the authors find several threats to the material integrity of the rock-hewn churches. Uh, The the, the churches are are somewhat vulnerable to the elements. They write, quote, most of the rock-hewn churches are affected by pre-carving cooling joints and bedding plane discontinuities and by mostly but not necessarily post-carving tectonic and seismic-induced cracks and fractures. So, for several reasons, having to do with the existing, you know, mass of rock there, and with things brought on by the the carving and excavation of these uh, building faces, there are cracks and fractures and vulnerabilities in the buildings and their structure. But they also say, uh, though most of the churches are hewn from medium to high strength rock mass discontinuities make them vulnerable to other deteriorating agents, mainly weathering and water infiltration. Again, it's not hard to see how porous rocks are subject to water infiltration. Uh, Quote, the scoriaceous basalt, which is porous and permeable, allows easy passage of water while the underlying basalt is impermeable, increasing the residence time of water in the porous material, causing deep weathering and subsequent loss of material in some of the churches and adjoining courtyards. So while they're still beautiful to see today, the, these buildings are uh, uh, under some material strain.
0: Yeah, I was reading about this um, on UNESCO's website, and they point out, another thing they point out is the drainage ditches. Uh, we mentioned already that that's part of sort of the uh, the system of tunnels and um, and, and ditches around uh, these structures. Right. It's a rock pit. You you need some way to drain it, right? Yeah. But uh, the thing is that the, the, those ditches were filled in with, filled in with dirt some time ago, and uh, this results in a lot of flooding and water damage over the years before they were then cleared out again in the early 20th century. I guess that, that's one of the things to keep in mind about structures that have existed for as long as these, is there's plenty of time for there to be periods of um, neglect, yeah. uh, even if there are not periods of, of outright uh, you know assault on them. Right. Um, so uh, water damage occurred then. You already mentioned the seismic uh, activity that uh, seemed to have damaged them as well. Uh, as such, they are all in fairly degraded shape at this point and and require monitoring, despite the construction of shelters over several of them. Uh, In fact, the House of Emmanuel, uh, one of the 11 we listed earlier, uh, is listed as being in danger of collapse. Um, And those shelters, too, uh, and you'll see these shelters if you look up uh, pictures of these today, uh, they're quite controversial as well, apparently, because they're, they're certainly sheltering these structures from the elements. Uh, But in some cases, they might actually be damaging the very structures they're protecting, uh, and some of them are arguably also at risk to collapse during storms. uh, And at the very least, they impact the visual presentation and serve, according to the uh, Associated Foreign Press, as, quote, a symbol of the neglect that Lalebella residents say they and the complex endure. Uh, on top of this there's the degradation to various paintings sculptures and uh, bas-reliefs inside uh, the uh, the temples And uh, even though the churches are protected by both the church and the state in Ethiopia, uh, apparently this doesn't always translate into there being like a lot of support uh, and and effort given uh, Mm -hmm. towards uh, the needs because there's still, according to um, UNESCO, quote, a need for stronger planning controls for the uh, setting of the churches that addresses housing, land use tourism, and for a management plan to be developed that integrates the conservation action plan and addresses the overall sustainable development of the area, with the involvement of the local population. Now, uh, I was looking around; it does seem like this remains uh, something that is being discussed, and um, uh, you know UNESCO is still still discussing possible plans uh, to better protect uh, these uh, churches. And there has been increased attention, even in the past year, with, uh, for instance, French President Emmanuel Macron visiting uh, the, the the site of these churches in Ethiopia.
1: Yeah, this race is something that has come up with a number of the the topics we've done about you know uh, old wonderful pieces of architecture. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is that obviously, you know, it makes sense to put things in place to protect uh, structures from being directly damaged by human behavior. But when something is being sort of like naturally weathered yeah. uh, and and uh, suffering, you know, just from the exposure to the, the natural forces that permeate the environment, I think then it becomes harder to know exactly what to do. Like, so imagine you're just dealing with the issue of, Would it be better to put up a shelter over one of these churches to prevent rain from falling on it? Uh, or not. I mean, and so maybe putting that up, you would say, could prevent some water damage from accumulating over time, but also that damage is relatively slow to happen. And in the meantime, everybody who goes on pilgrimage to this church, now the pilgrimage is under this big artificial shelter. Right. And then I can only um, imagine that
0: a site like this offers unique challenges as it is built unlike. Buildings are typically constructed, you know? Uh. Yeah, there, there are a number of concerns that come together here. And also coming back to just the nature of of buildings, the nature of sculpture, the nature of anything humans have made. Something like, like like this, certainly, from a human perspective, it is long-lived. It is very durable. It may even seem to be eternal. But from a geologic standpoint, it is quite frail. It is frailer than the thing that came before it. And, uh, you know, therefore, it's it's foolish to think that it will just be able to remain down there at the bottom of this, uh, this pit and, uh, and and remain, you know, untouched. No, I mean, it's, it, it's going Follow the, uh, you know, the natural laws of erosion, like everything else. All right. So there you have it. The churches of Lalibela in Ethiopia, uh, just amazing structures. Uh, again, we have not visited uh, this, uh, this, this site in person, but we know that uh, since we have, we have listeners out there from all over the world, and we have listeners that are, that are well-traveled in many cases, uh, we know some of you have been there, and we would love to hear of your experiences. Or if you haven't actually been to these monolithic churches, perhaps you've been to some of the other monolithic churches, and there are a handful elsewhere in the world. We'd love to hear about your experiences there. In the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That'll redirect you to one of the many places you can find us. You can find the show wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever that happens to be, just make sure that you subscribe. Make sure that you rate and review us. And uh, yeah, just uh, uh, tell a friend. Uh, to let, let someone else know that uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind or our other show, Invention, uh, you know, help get you through the day or taught you something you didn't know about previously
1: huge thanks as always to our awesome audio producer seth nicholas johnson if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind dot com.